But if you weren't here last week, I just want to go over and review uh, what we talked about last week. We're looking at the seven IMs uh, that Jesus proclaimed in the Gospel of John uh, and contained nowhere else in, in, uh, throughout any of the other Gospels. It's only here in John. And as we all know, John also wrote, wrote the book of Revelation. So there's a lot of uh, correlation between those two. But last week we looked at the four first I am's. The first one being in John 6.35, I am the bread of life, meaning that I am the sustainer of all life, the one who satisfies. To those who are hungry and are seeking sustaining life, I am that bread, which is your spiritual nourishment. And secondly, we looked at John 8, uh, verse 12, I am the light of the world, the illuminator of life. I am the one, to borrow a phrase from Paul, who, in whom all things are hidden, the treasures and wisdom of knowledge, the explainer of all things, the one who casts light upon all mysteries and, and solves them. Uh, to those that are spiritually blind, your eyes will be opened. So therefore, I am your spiritual understanding. And the third I am is in John ten seven, which is I am the door. And we looked at what that meant in the times that it was written and the protection that the uh, shepherd took when he became that door uh, to the sheepfold uh, to the point that he put himself between the sheep and in harm's way and in that place would lay down his life for those sheep. So he is the opportunity into life, the open way uh, to seek to those who uh, to seek shall be open to them. Uh, he is the, our spiritual protection And in number four, the fourth I am is I am the good shepherd, which is very familiar to most of us. We've heard it many times in John chapter 10. And that is that he is the guide of life, the only one properly equipped to take an individual safely through all the turmoils and stresses that we have in this life and lead us safely through. To those that are lost, they will be found. To those that are found, they will be cared for. For he is our spiritual provision. So just in a nutshell, those are the kind of four that we looked at last week. I'm just giving you a brief outline of, of what, we, uh, what we talked about. And then this week, we're looking at the final three, um, and especially the next one, which is a transitional I am in the Gospel of John. Um, this one here is set apart from the other ones because of the type and what happens uh, because of this particular I am. But I don't know about you, but this week I was kind of intrigued by the new buzz phrase that's going around the, the world and uh, in social media and so forth called fake news. Have many of you heard of that thing, fake news? And I started thinking about fake news. Well, you know, we can go into, you know, all kinds of things that we hear, we read, we see, and we're always questioning, is it real or is it not real? And it's a dilemma sometimes because we don't know what to believe sometimes. And so, we look and we hear and we discern and we try to figure out. Some people go to Snopes and try to figure out if it's real or not. And sometimes even Snopes doesn't have the right thing. But I started thinking, what other things are fake uh, in our world? We now have Photoshopping, right? That we can take anybody's makeup and change whatever we want to do to make it appealing to what we want to accomplish, whether it be advertisement or whatever. We have editing quotes. People make all kinds of quotes. Well, sometimes they're taking out of context. Sometimes they're just uh, compartmentalized to make a point or to support an agenda. And also we have those parties that uh, take videos and they cut and edit them so that maybe we're seeing one thing that's really not in its entirety, but we're seeing little pieces put together again for whatever reason... um, either it be a person or a company, whatever it may be, to give us a different understanding of what's real. And in the same way, Christ in the Gospel of John is saying the same thing. I am real. I am who I said I am. And I'm going to show you and prove it to you so that there's no question. And we looked um, last week of how those first four when in the context that he's talking about, I am the bread, I am the light, the door, and the good shepherd, he was stepping on religious zealots and religious leaders' toes very heavily. 
And as we go through the next three, we'll see that the religious leaders are not going to put up with this very much longer. At this point, as we get to uh, John 11, Jesus is looking forward to the cross. He's preparing his disciples for what's going to take place. But he wants to reassure them that, hey, I am real. I am who I said I am. In John chapter 11 and verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. But what is he really saying here? John chapter 11 is the fifth I am statement that Jesus is stating here, proclaiming. Lazarus was dead, and earlier Jesus had heard that his good friend was sick. But instead of going to visit Lazarus, Jesus stayed where he was for two more days. He explained to his wandering disciples that the sickness was for God's glory, that God's Son may be glorified through it. And after Lazarus died, Jesus began his journey to Bethany, which is where Lazarus lived. Significantly, when Jesus informed his disciples that Lazarus was dead, he simply said his friend was asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Outside Bethany, Lazarus' sisters, Martha, went out to meet him. If you had been here, she said, my brother would not have died. Such was her faith in Christ and his power to heal. But Jesus replied by assuring Martha that your brother would rise again. And Martha responded again in faith, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And at this point, Jesus makes his fifth I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. And he who follows it with a call to faith, he who believes in me will live, even though he dies. But whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So let's just turn there to John chapter 11 and let's look at the story that we have here. You can read along with me. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus was now sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and and her sister and Lazarus as well. So when they heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days and then said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and you're going back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk in the daytime will not stumble for they will see by this world's light. It is when people walk at night that they stumble for they have no light. But Jesus answered, and after that he said to them, and he went on, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant regular sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe but let us go. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us go there that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will. I know he'll rise again on the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. 
And now let's go down to verse 32. And this is when they're at the tomb. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and his spirit troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he open the eyes of the blind and kept this man alive? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a solid stone across it. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. And Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped in strips of linen and cloth cloth, cloth, uh, around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes and let him go. This is a huge turning point in the ministry of Christ. Nothing like this has ever been done before. Yes, he's changed wine, water into wine. He's fed more than 5,000 people with some loaves and fish. He's done miracles up to this point, but nothing to this magnitude. So we have a turning point in John's gospel from this point on. You see, Jesus had already clashed with the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem on a number of occasions. Let's go back and look. The first major confrontation comes in chapter 5 as the result of healing a paralytic man on the Sabbath, commanding him to take up his mattress and walk. And when challenged by the Jews, Jesus defends himself and his actions by claiming to be God. This is in chapter 5. The Jews are already intent on killing him, but now they are all the more eager to do so. In our Lord's Bread of Life teaching, he makes a similar claim, but this was in Capernaum, not Jerusalem. Many of those who followed Jesus as disciples now are leaving him in chapter 6. In chapter 7, Jesus returns once again to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, where where his teaching is dividing people in the city. Some are strongly opposed to him, while others are much more favorable. Similar reactions are recorded in chapter 8, when our Lord, in verse 58, says, Before Abraham came into existence, I am. And also in chapter 8, Jesus claims to be the light of the world. In chapter 9, he demonstrates this claim is true by giving sight to a man that is born blind. In chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as a true, good, and great shepherd, while at the same time, he indicts the Jewish religious leaders for being wicked and thieves and robbers of the sheep. He claims once again to be one with God the Father, which brings on two more attempts to stone him. Jesus makes a number of statements in chapter 10, 10, which he will validate in chapter 11. He, as the good shepherd, gives eternal life to his sheep. He does this by voluntarily laying down his life for his sheep. See, remember how many times we saw that phrase, laying down, I lay my life down? But he also claims that he has authority to take up his life again due to his unique relationship with his father. These are bold claims, but the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11 proves these claims are valid. And of course, our Lord's resurrection that we read in Matthew 12 will be the final word on these claims and the ultimate sign that truly he was the Son of God. Here in chapter 11, Lazarus becomes very ill and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, send word of his condition, expecting Jesus to drop everything and rush to their side because they're very close friends. And they wanted him to be there to heal this illness and keep him from dying. But Jesus does a strange thing. He doesn't respond. 
the two sisters, as well as the disciples, are kind of confused. Why? The issue with Mary and Martha are the same issues that we have to deal sometimes in our lives today, isn't it? Death is the ultimate enemy for all of us. How we deal with it determines how we live. Most of us in this room have experienced a death of some sort. Whether it be a family member or a friend, an acquaintance, a business relationship. But most of us have experienced that at one time or another. Some are more personal than others. I remember 11 years ago when my mom had her open heart surgery. And it was to the point where if she didn't have it, that her time was limited. So there had to be a risk involved. And I remember there was a lot of prayer involved before she went into surgery. There was a lot of preparation too. I think by God's grace, he kept her in there for a good many days before the surgery with different things, but reassuring her that he was in control. So, as fate would have it, we went that Saturday to my grandmother's funeral service, which myself and my brothers were the pallbearers. So while my mom's having surgery, we're at a funeral service for my grandmother that died a week before. Three and a half hour drive up, three and a half hour drive back. Come home, mom's doing good. Doctors are pleased. My dad and I go over there at about 8.30 that night. We see her. She's coherent. She knows who we are. She's smiling. We pray with her. We go home and we're feeling really good. 12.30 Sunday morning, the phone rings. It's the doctor in the ER. Is this Ken Saragusa? Yes, it is. I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. Well, all you have to hear is bad news, right? And you know what's coming. And he said, we tried everything we could, but your mom mom went into an arrhythmia that we couldn't contain, we couldn't stop, we couldn't, couldn't get it together, and that was it. And I remember at that point in time just bursting out and going to God, why? I don't get it. We just saw her. Things were going well. My expectation was she was going to pull through. Why? And that was a question that I continued to ask for some months afterwards. Even though I was happy for her, I still was upset of why. Same thing, Martha and Mary are saying, why, Jesus, didn't you come earlier? For if you had come earlier, we wouldn't have to go through this. There's a purpose behind everything God does, isn't there? We may not always see it. We may not always agree with it. But if we're patient enough, God will reveal it to us. And as time went on, I saw God's grace in this situation with my mom that had this happened when her and my dad were by themselves, my dad would have fallen apart. My mom may may not have gotten uh, some kind of medical uh, soon enough. There could have been all kinds of things. But the bigger thing that God kept reminding me was, I am the resurrection and the life. Why are you so concerned (laughs) <laughs> you know, And I thought, you know what? You're right, Lord. Continue to drive that home in my mind because that's what I need right now. And at this point, when Jesus comes to the tomb, and he doesn't say, arise, because if he would have done that, there would have been a lot of people coming out of tombs. He had to be specific because of the power of his word. Specific to identify who he wanted to raise. So when he says, Lazarus, come out, That's the only one who came out, was Lazarus. There are many belief systems in this world that define or try to figure out what happens after this life. Some think we come back as 
something else. Or some believe we come back as a different animal or a bird. Some believe that we become angels. There are many different types of beliefs. But Jesus and all the apostolic writers accepted none of these. They speak of the resurrection of the body as a supernatural gift given to believers in Christ. And as Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 15, death for the believer means the end of this earthly existence and a new bodily existence in the presence of Christ. Just looking and speaking with Al yesterday, Terry and I, and just looking at his demeanor, I mean, he, there was a piece about him that he was wanting to go. He's been wanting to go for a long time. And most of us would say, well, that's logical. When we get to that point that our bodies start to shut down, it's like, okay, I, I give up, Lord, take me. But Al had that, that looking forward for his whole life. It's amazing. Terry and I were talking at, at the, uh, on the way home. I said, I've got to be honest with you, Terry. I, I, I know it, I believe it, but I'm just not ready yet. And we both agreed, no, neither am I. But we don't know what God has in store. But we do know the God that we serve and the God of promise. And the same thing that he's telling here, that he is that resurrection and the life. This is the final public miracle that Jesus did. And it's the capstone of his miracles and ministry. This is a remarkable miracle because he defies death. He allows time to pass by so that when he performs this miracle, there is no question of who he is. And the raising of Lazarus in a small way strengthened the faith of the disciples. However, it's not going to be enough until they fully see the resurrected Christ. The resurrection of Lazarus gives us a preview of the resurrection of Christ. We have to remember that when somebody in that time passed away, there were a number of people around the tomb, around the family that supported them. There could, be, there could have been dozens to hundreds of people. This miracle was for a purpose. This miracle was performed in front of as many people as were there. This miracle would be the tipping point. The religious Jews will now stop at nothing to exterminate, they think, this madman and put an end to his so-called vain ideology and life-changing message. Not too much different than today. There are people all over this world that are suffering for this truth, that are being put to death for this truth. We don't hear a lot about it because we're kind of isolated here. But if you look far enough, you'll find it. There are people giving their lives because of what they believe. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection, he didn't claim to have the resurrection life or understand secrets about the resurrection. Instead, he dramatically said that he is the resurrection. You see, our temporal home in no way represents our eternal home. As beautiful as this planet is, it doesn't compare to what God has in store for us. Many of us who have seen the Grand Canyon are overwhelmed by the immensity and the beauty of the Grand Canyon alone. And our breath is taken away. And that's just a snippet of what God has in store for us. What sustains us here will not sustain us there. What we value here will fade away and remain earthly bound and rust away. For the Bible states that our true treasures await us in a place designed and prepared for us by the one who created us in all things. 
that should be a reassuring hope for all of us. The resurrection and the life. Secondly, we come to the sixth I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Found in John 14, verse 1 through 14. A lot of times we hear this at a funeral service, some type of memorial around the gravesite and so forth. But in this context, Jesus is speaking these words for a particular reason. We're going to break down, and in your outline there, there are seven things that are under that category, and I'm going to give them to you. Because I want to just go through the whole chapter, and then we'll kind of look at uh, verse 6 by itself. In verse 1, your first part of the outline there is the person who is the object of our faith. In verse 1 it says, believe also in me. He would no longer be the object of sight to a few faithful followers on earth, but in heaven, the object of faith to millions and billions who will and would put their trust and faith in him, the person. Verse 2 says, the place that is being prepared. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. The disciples and many other people were looking for an earthly kingdom. But Christ wasn't about earthly kingdoms because his kingdom was not of this world. In verse 3, he promises of his personal return for us. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself. If heaven was to be the home of his people, he promises to come again and take them to that home. At the end of the same verse, we have the promise of his presence. He says, where I am, there you may be also. While Jesus was on earth, they enjoyed his physical presence, but now he was going back to heaven in the future. He promised they would never be separated from him ever again. In verse 13, we have the power of his name. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. It was the name of Jesus which was included in the title above the cross. The early Christians knew the power of his name and his promise. And that power still exists to this day. In verse 16, there's this, the sixth one, the promise of his Holy Spirit. He says, I will pray that the Father will give you another, a helper. You see, when Jesus left, he didn't leave us alone. He's still here through the power of his Holy Spirit. If we want to know what the Spirit is like, we just have to look at the life of Christ. And finally, in verse 27, the peace is secured. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives you, but let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus promised peace at the time when the circumstances leading to the cross were all but peaceful. In Paul's words, a peace, a peace which passes all understanding. This is in context of why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You ever been anxious about something? I know some people struggle with anxiety a lot. Sometimes it just overwhelms them to the point where they can't function. And they just have to sit and be quiet. But maybe it was the first time you went for a job interview. Maybe it was the very first date you went on. Maybe it was your, married, your day that you got married. Maybe it was the day your first child was born. Or fifth or sixth. Maybe it was an appointment at the doctor and the news that he had to share with you wasn't the greatest or what you wanted to hear. But whatever anxiety that you face, be assured that God knows it before it even happens. He knows he's going to the cross. The apostles don't grasp that yet. 
So he wants to comfort them. He wants to let them know, don't worry. When we look at the context of these words in John's Gospel, we find that Jesus is not just addressing these issues, but issues that will come for our life as well. The disciples are extremely anxious about what his words are saying that he has to leave. And he's speaking to them to reassure them, to give them hope in a time of great uncertainty and anxiety. This I am saying is found in John's account. And it's the last few hours that he has with his disciples before his arrest, his trial, and eventually crucifixion. We are left with when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Some ask, what does that mean? In John 13, he says, My little children, I will be with you only a little while longer. 13.33 You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. As Jesus patiently continued to teach his disciples, he began speaking more plainly about heaven, describing the place where he was going, that he was preparing, and that he would come back and get them again. But Thomas, good old Thomas, there's a little bit of Thomas in each one of us, I think, depending on what we're being confronted with. And Thomas says that he didn't know where he was going. So how could they know how to follow him? It was in this answer that we have this I am. As I said last week, the I am in the Greek language, it's a very intense way of referring to oneself. It would be comparable to saying, I myself and only I am. Several other times in the Gospels we find Jesus using these words as well. In John eight fifty eight. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He told him, I am he, and in his words were so powerful. Do you remember when he was being confronted and being betrayed? That when they asked who he was and he said, I am he, the soldiers fell. Remember that? Just by his word. It is the name and the power and the authority that Jesus has as his own. Well, let's look at the way. Jesus used the definite article to distinguish himself as the only way. A way is a path or a route. And the disciples had expressed their confusion about where he was going and how they could follow. And he told them from the beginning. Jesus was again telling them at this point, the same thing. Follow me. There is no other path to heaven except through the Father or through me. There's no other salvation found in no one else. There is no under name given to which men will be saved in Acts 4.12. The exclusive nature of this only path of salvation is expressed in these words, I am the way. Jesus did not say, I will show you the way, or let me write down the way. He said, I am the way. It's like if we were in a grocery store. Have you ever been in a grocery store or Home Depot or whatever, and you're asking one of the people, do you know where this, oh yeah, it's down aisle 14 up on the shelf, da-da-da. And you're going, okay, I, I can find it, right? So you go down aisle 14 and you're looking and you're looking and you go, I, I, I don't know where it is. I can't find this. So you go back to somebody else. You know, I'm looking for, oh yeah, it's on aisle 15 up over here. Okay, I'll go over to aisle 15 and go over here. And by the third time, you're going, the heck with this. I'm, I'm just going to walk out the store. Wouldn't it have been awesome though if the guy said, hold on, sir, I'll come with you. Walked right up, looked, showed, there it is. Oh, thank you so much. That's what Jesus is doing. 
He's walking along with us and he's going, see, it's right there. The cross, it's right there. You just have to put your faith in that. You don't have to look anywhere else. Secondly, Jesus says, not only am I the only way, but I am the only truth. Again, Jesus uses this definite article to emphasize that he himself is the only truth. When Jesus says, I am the truth, he's not saying, I am one possible truth, or I am one truth claiming among many. Rather, he's saying, I am the personification of truth. We all remember when Pilate asked Jesus the great question, what is truth? And in doing so, echoed what so many people ask now more than ever. And Jesus answered and says, I am he. John MacArthur writes this, Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Even more to the point, truth is the self-expression of God. That is the biblical meaning of truth because the definition of truth flows from God. Therefore, truth is theological. Reality is what it is because God declared it so and made it so. Therefore, God is the author, the source, determiner, governor, arbiter, ultimate standard, and final judge of all truth. I think that's pretty clear. Another writer says, There is my truth, there's your truth, there's their truth, and then there's God's absolute truth. Third, Jesus says, Not only am I the way, the truth, but he says, I am the life. Jesus had been telling his disciples about his impending death, and now he, had, he was claiming to be the source of life. When Jesus says, I am the life, he's not saying, I will enrich your life. He's not saying, I will make your life problem-free. He's not saying that I'm going to take everything that bothers you, and I'm going to take it away. Although putting your faith in Christ gives us the peace to deal with those things. He says, I am life itself. I can give you a life that will not only transform your life now, but eternally. A life that even death cannot destroy. When Jesus says life, he is always talking about eternal life. A quality of life he gives that even death will never conquer. In these, three, in these words here, Jesus was declaring himself as the great I am. The only path to heaven, the only true measurement of righteousness, the source of both physical and spiritual life. He was staking his claim as the very God of creation, the Holy One, the one that come down from heaven. By this time, those around that were listening to him were either, either being encouraged or being discouraged. One writer writes this, which I love. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, and the life which you must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, and the unending life. I am the way that is straight, the truth that is supreme, and the life that is eternal. But before we can have any of those six, the last one is the important one. They're all equally important. But as we get to the final, we have the connection. None of the other six IMs will make any sense unless we understand this last one. This last proclamation relates to all the six before Unless we are part of the vine, we will not nor cannot comprehend what each of the prior I am's mean. We must be connected to the source that gives understanding and new life. And that is when John says, I am, or when Jesus says in John, I am the true vine. When he says, I am the true vine, 
My father is the gardener. We continue here in chapter 15, verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can't do anything. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. For you are my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because servants do not know their master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. In this 17 verses, you see or you might have read with your eyes and heard with your ears the amount of times that he says remain. Remain in me. Remain. Over and over. This is the last of the seven I am declarations that are recorded in John's gospel. This I am proclamation points to his unique divine identity and purpose. I am the true vine, he says. To those closest around him, it was only a short time before Judas would betray him. And in fact, at this point in time, Judas Judas had already left to betray him. However, Jesus was preparing the eleven that were left for his pending crucifixion, his resurrection, and his subsequent departure from this earth into his heavenly home. He just had told them that he would be leaving in John 14. And knowing how disturbed they would feel, he gave them this great metaphor of the vine and the branches to encourage them. And Jesus wants his friends, not only those 11, but those of all time, including you and I, to know that he will never desert us. Even though that they would no longer have him physically but he would continue to sustain them. And he gives this metaphor of the vine and the branches. Jesus wanted us to know that even though we cannot see him, we are as closely connected to him as the branches of the vine are connected to its stem. And our desire to know and love him and serve him will keep flowing into us through him if we abide in him. We must understand that apart from him, we can do nothing, although we do. There are a lot of times that we look around us and we say, well, I think I should do this, or I think I and considered to do this, or go there, see them. And most of it is done on our own strength. In Acts 17, verse 28, it says, For in him we live and we move and we have our being. You see, the vine is the source. It's the nourishment. It's the lifeline to the branches. And the branches, the only way that they can survive is to abide in 
the stem. Abide in the life-giving nourishment. God also wills that his children bear much fruit. Jesus is honored through our life when we bear his fruit, not our own. The way to glorify him in bearing much fruit is to abide in Christ. That's the only way. Part of the verses that we read of the greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That is our call. Perhaps you don't understand what that connection means as a branch. Going up to the wine country in Napa, there's millions and millions of branches and, and grapevines. And I thought, you know, to make a vine, a grapevine, it'd be great to just pull some grapes from the grocery store and go up to the vine and tape them on. Say, there's a grapevine. But after a period of time, what happens to that bunch of grapes? It dies. Because it's not connected to the life source of that branch or of that stem. Think of it this way. If you're not connected somewhere in your life, those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, we have a, a connection through God's Spirit. You also have a connection through His Word, the life-giving Word. That Word never changes. That Word is a life source. That's where we need to be connected. To those of us sitting here this morning that haven't done that, maybe don't have that connection, but you're a good person. You've been doing great things, and those are all wonderful, but those are going to fade away eternally, that branch will be cut off because you're not connected to the life source. What's amazing here is how he compares the fruit. In Galatians chapter 5, we all know the passage about God's fruit, but I want us to look a little bit above that. Verses 16 through 18 talk about the connection to the vine. Galatians chapter 5. Verses 16 through 18 talk about the connection to the vine. If you're not connected to the vine, you may produce some of this type of fruit. Verses 19 through 21, which is not very good fruit, bad fruit. However, if you are connected to the vine, verses 22 through 24, or actually 22 and 23, give you the definition of the fruit if you're connected to the vine. And I know I don't need to say this, but it's singular fruit. Although there's a list of nine, it's singular. I think it's God's way of showing us there's no way we can keep all nine at one time. It's impossible, even if we're connected. Well, let's take a look at these fruit of the Spirit, this fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. There are three delineations here, and I have them on your outline. The first three are inward, the second three are outward, and the final three are upward. The first one is love, but it's not a love that's defined by human words. It's called agape, a word which describes God's love. This is his whole essence and nature. At the start of our Christian life, we will develop by, divide, by abiding in him. The second one is joy. This gives strength in Christ. In Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Even in the problems of life, we have joy and can rejoice. And again, in 1 John 14 First John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, These things I write unto you, so that your joy, which you already have, will be made full or complete. Thirdly, inward, peace, which can control our lives in every circumstance. And then Paul refers to that in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which passes all understanding 
will surround us like a garrison of soldiers. Our hearts and minds will be protected and at peace because we are connected to the vine. These three, love, joy, and peace, are specifically the characteristics of the Lord himself given to us through the power of the Spirit. He speaks in John 14 through 17 as my love, my joy, and my peace, which he gives. The second three here are those that are towards others. I don't want to hear any grumbling or groaning because I know all of us are capable of each one of these. However, if you do, I, look, I just admire your honesty. <laughs> long-suffering. What is long-suffering? It's the uncomplaining endurance or patience which characterizes a believer's firmly devoted to the will of the Lord. Forbearing. Putting up with those that are not so lovable. In our relationships with other believers, it really comes to that sometimes, right? But think of the long-suffering of the Lord, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Any long-suffering we show can never equal that to what God has shown through his Son. So when you have somebody that's kind of rubbing you the wrong way, if you can think, look at the long-suffering God put up with. I can deal with this for a period of time. And then we come to kindness or gentleness. A kindness is helpful and, is helpful and useful, especially with others. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? In 2 Timothy 2.24, it says, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. And Paul showed this in his caring to the Thessalonians when he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes, cherish, cherishes, cherishes her children. That's a hard one. Our great need today to be gentle sometimes can be overwhelming. It's hard to be that way. Then we get to goodness. That which is good in its character and flows out of the benefit of others, for the benefit of others. The prayer of the apostles for the Thessalonians was that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Hopefully his goodness will flow through those of us to others. Did I hit any buttons yet? Is there places for us to improve, work on? Last, we come to those that are upward, the last three. Faith. And this could be translated faithfulness. That is, in our daily lives, do we remain faithful to the things of God? Are we expressing His character in our daily life? Are we showing others that truly we're connected to the vine. Next is humility. In our day and age, this is a big one. A humble person is not easily offended and lives a balanced life. Fairness doesn't become an issue. Throughout our life, we see how the Lord, as an example was humble, even though he was powerful. We saw by just his word could knock over a garrison of soldiers. At any point in time, God could have called down angels from heaven to do whatever he wanted them to do. But that wasn't his purpose. A lot of times we'd like to call down angels from heaven, right? Circumstances we find ourselves in, people that we are not really connected to, uh, don't want to be connected to, Lord, just rain on them, you know, whatever. <laughs> be mindful of what God is telling us here. How about temperance, or in other words, self-control? Isn't it amazing what we read sometimes or hear or see, how our emotions get taken for a ride and our, our logic goes out the window? 
And all we're doing is we're driven emotionally. And you know, there's designs for that. Advertisement is designed to play on your emotions. How vital it is for us in our Christian testimony that we don't yield to our emotions necessarily to be the runner of our life. Or maybe you're passionate about something, but where does that passion take you? Does it take you past what God wants in your life? Does it take you out of the connection to the vine? I want you to know that no good fruit is ever produced unless you are connected to the vine. When we are connected to the vine, we live, first of all, an abundant life. Secondly, we live a joyful life. And third, we have a secured life. All through the connection. I read earlier Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which is Paul reminding us of Jesus' true identity. The title of my message the last couple of weeks has been No Mistaken Identity. No Mistaken Identity. As we close the last of our two-week study, I pray that you have, been, have a better and deeper understanding of who Christ truly is. He's not just a baby that was born in a stable that we celebrate each year. He was not just a boy who made the wise foolish while teaching in the temple. He was not just a man that could make profound proclamations, administer supernatural miracles, and speak with great authority. He was not just a good teacher that understood the sinfulness of mankind. He was not just a martyr that died on a cross for making false promises. He was, however, the resurrected Son of God who defeated death on the cross. And on the third day he rose. And for those of us who put our faith and trust in him, we too will receive that very same resurrected life. Not only eternally, but now we can live that way. Remember, our kingdom is not of this world. Talking with Al yesterday, he knows that. He understands that. He proclaims to us that I am the bread of life. I am your provision. I am the light of the world. I am your illumination. I am the gate to the sheepfold. I am your protection. I am the good shepherd. I am your supervision. I am the resurrection and the life. I am your restoration. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am your direction. I am the vine. I am your connection. He is and always has been from the beginning the great I am. These incredible proclamations call on each one of us personally, to respond. And if you remember the question I asked before, when Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you say I am? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful of the power and presence of your word and the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for these last two weeks of just looking at the surface, truly, of who you are. Each one of these are overwhelming in themselves. But taken as a whole, Lord, we have a complete understanding that you are who you said you are. It's hard for us to understand that sometimes, but only through your power, through being connected by the power of your Spirit, do we gather that understanding. And Lord, I pray that if there's any here that have not answered that question, Maybe they can answer it right now. But if they can't, I pray that they would wrestle with it until they can answer that question. I pray that it would just be on their mind and heart until they are clear that they have to answer that question individually, personally. We pray for those, Lord, that have yet to put their trust and faith in you by your hand. 
Give them that understanding. Draw them to yourself so that they may know the true I am. Lord, we thank you when we ask you to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.